So if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, page 798 in the church Bibles for Romans 5, page 815 in the church Bibles for 1 Corinthians 15. And I just want to remind you, this is a part two sermon, and we began learning that 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 and 2 is shorthand of Romans 5. And so what I determined to do, I thought it was very essential for us as a congregation, particularly at this time in our life, that we understand uh, the doctrine of original sin and then this morning uh, the doctrine of justification. These things are foundational and we need to know them. And um, I think I'm going to say this in the sermon. If we get justification wrong, uh, we'll get almost everything else wrong in the life uh, of us as believers. We'll get almost every other doctrine wrong. So we need to get this right. So I'm going to begin reading in just a second or two from verse 12 of Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of the one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the obedience of the one man, disobedience, excuse me, of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Verse 19, a very important verse, isn't it? Disobedience, one man, we were made sinners. Obedience, one man, we were made righteous. Verse 20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. May he grant us understanding of it this morning. And let's bow together and pray. Father, what a wretched man that I am. Who will save me? from this body of death. I thank you there is a way out only through Jesus Christ our Lord. To that end, Father, come take hold of this occasion this morning. Be much pleased to bless it. I know my complete inadequacy in it as one who has been given the task to explain these verses and therefore may the Holy Spirit be our teacher. May the Holy Spirit be our power to make much of Jesus Christ and may rivers of grace flow out of all of us here in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished at the cross. And we pray this in his name. Amen. 
Monsters eat Fig Newtons too. That quote came from the book The Lost Executioner written by Nick Dunlap. We referred to that book briefly, briefly the last time we were together. And this book describes Mr. Dunlap's search for a man who was a mass murderer on behalf of the Cameroon government of Cambodia named Comrade Doik. This man, Comrade Doik, this would have been between the years 1975 and 79. He was a leader of the nation's most notorious death camp, torture camp, and he led the torture of tens of thousands of citizens to a false confession of rebellion towards the Cameroon government. Then after torturing these citizens to a false confession, he would have the citizens immediately killed because of their confession. And this happened, again, tens of thousands of times. And, and after the fall of the Cameroon government, Comrade Doik, as you would suspect, he went into hiding. Soon after that, Dunlap went to Cambodia looking for Doik. And all he had was a crumbled up photograph of this murderer. But Dunlap eventually found his, his monster, who, however, was more man than he was prepared for. He, he went looking for a monster, and he actually found an unassuming man. Describing their first meeting, Dunlap says, The former torturer was small in stature, pleasant in manner, quiet in speech, unassuming, and was a schoolteacher, a well-loved schoolteacher who had a fondness for Fig Newtons. And in this, Dunlap couldn't account for what he encountered. He went looking for a monster, and he found a man, a well-loved man, who also loved to eat Fig Newtons, which prompted the saying, even monsters um, eat Fig Newtons. So Dunlap writes, I was shaken realizing how normal humanity's worst can appear. How thin is the wall separating what is decent and what is despicable, what seems honorable and what is absolutely abhorrent. And so Dunlap's remarks about the common cracks in humanity, in our humanity, falls right in line with what Paul was saying in Romans 5. And then again, the expanded version of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. So the last time we were together, and we're going to do this purposely, we learned that sin is sin is sin. There is ultimately no distinction in human sin before the eyes of God. We are tempted to make those distinctions, and we probably do, but God, the only judge, does not. We then learn that this is true in part because Paul makes no distinction in naming the sin. He simply calls, and you see this if your Bible's open, verse 12, sin entered this world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men. And Paul was saying sin then entered this world through Adam and human death is not just the consequence of Adam's sin, but it's also the evidence of Adam's sin. Sin, as we said, is like a virus. It spread. How do we know sin spread from the garden? Well, death is everywhere. Death now for the world reigns. And so it's the destiny of everyone in this room to die. And sin is the reason why we will die. More specifically, Adam's sin. And Paul is saying then, Adam's sin did not affect Adam alone. Therefore, sin, says Paul, verse 19a, is representative. Just like justification, sin is representative. This flaw which every human being shares, a common thread in our existence which we all share in Adam. And we learn that theologians have called this original sin. Paul simply says, in Adam all died. 
And the common flaw then, which every human shares, is meant to humble our hearts and make us bow to the reality that every single human being, as Paul will go on to say, every human being needs the justification, requires the justification that Jesus Christ alone provides in light of his finished work on the cross and his mighty resurrection from the dead. That's Romans 4.25. You might see that to the left of your Bible. He was put to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. So why did the apostles take the message of the cross and only the message of the cross everywhere they went? Why is this message the baseline for all Christian instruction? You cannot have Christian instruction if it's not met with the cross, if it's not dipped in the cross. You can have moral instruction, but you can't have Christian instruction. Why is that the case? Well, Because we can't fix ourselves. Because we share the flaw of Adam's sin as well as our own trespasses. And there is no escaping this as long as we are human. What is in others is in us, no matter where the others live, no matter the degree of others' sins. Verse 17, by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. Verse 19, through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, made sinners. Sin is representative. And this answers then the most basic question of human existence. Why am I the way that I am? And is there any hope for me? Well, why am I the way that I am? Well, in Adam all died, and therefore all sinned. I'm a child of Adam. Is there any hope for me? Yes, and here it is. Your only hope in life and death, right, is your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We then concluded, in light of those truths, there's some implications. Implication number one, our sin should not shock us. Implication number two, our sin doesn't shock God. Our sin should not shock us since my nature is corrupt. I should not be shocked or despondent or depressed that I struggle with sin. This is common to my nature. It's nothing to get excited about. It's just important that we realize this. This is why daily repentance is essential. Father, please forgive me, right, is is part of our common prayer language. The reality of our humanity shouldn't shock us. In fact, it's God's way of humbling us and showing us our great need of a Savior. It's God's way of saying, you can't fix this. You cannot fix this. Try as you might, you can't fix this. So our sin shouldn't shock us. Number two, our sin does not shock God. God is not surprised by the depth of our depravity. He's not surprised when we wrongly try to carry ourselves in the world or carry ourselves in the church to give the impression that the battle with indwelling sin is really no big deal to us. We, we got this, Jesus. That was Peter before he denied his Savior. God sent his son because of our sins. He's not shocked. So, so let it all out to him now. It's much safer now. Let it now. Let it out. Tell him everything. One last thing that needs to be said before we move on. Our sin should not shock us. Our sin does not shock our God. The sins of others should not shock us as well. People everywhere eat Fig Newtons too, right? Wives, your husbands eat Fig Newtons. Husbands, your wives eat Fig Newtons. Kids, your parents eat Fig Newtons. Parents, your kids eat Fig Newtons. Congregation, your pastor eats Fig Newtons. Congregation, I know you eat Fig Newtons. If we are unwilling or unprepared to face the flaw of others, as one beggar trying to help another beggar find food, 
we will not be able to minister to them. If we're not prepared for people to lie about us, make false accusations, betray, disappoint us, we cannot serve the people of God. We'll just be shocked. How could they do that? Well, because they're just like us. That's how. It's a common flaw of some pastors and teachers to think if we say the right thing in the right way, people will do the right thing. However, if, you know, if people didn't listen to Jesus Christ, why in the world do we think different about ourselves? Why? And if they persecuted Jesus Christ, they may well turn on us. And this should not shock us. It scares us, if you're a pastor, but it doesn't shock us. And if we do not face this reality that other people carry Adam's sin in them and that we are commonly flawed, that then their sin will shock us. And they will appear more like an enemy than family. And it will be doubly hard to forgive them. And it will be doubly hard to be reconciled with them. And it will be doubly hard to do what Jesus said to do and pray for those who mistreat you, who trouble you. Why so hard? Because we're still in shock. We're still in shock. And this kind of person then has the wrong view of sin, has a poor grasp of their own personal sin, has a poor hold on theology in light of original sin, has a poor grasp of the gospel, which does what? What is the great news of the gospel? It forgives sins, and it unites us to Jesus, and it unites us as Christians to one another. This is what Paul said in, in Ephesians chapter 5 to the husbands. Husbands, you're united to your wife. You wouldn't mistreat your own body, would you? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not. So why would you mistreat your body by mistreating other people in the body? That's what Paul says. So this doctrine of original sin calls for patience then with one another, doesn't it? It does. And Paul is honest enough to tell us, why am I the way that I am? You're a child of Adam, that's why. Pain and suffering and evil and destruction and heartache, they're real, they are concrete, they are certain, they cannot be removed. They are part of our broken world. You can go all over the place and you're going to see this. Broken not by God, but by Adam. And the world will remain broken until God turns off the lights. And of course, if we just go back to Corinth just for a moment, in that church, they, th they thought, you know what? We can and we should, and to a degree, we have it all now. This is great here. It's great. But that was nothing more than a life of irresponsibility with an empty head and a closed Bible and a closed eyes to the reality of themselves and the world around them. Well, that's original sin, and that was last time. So having explained this, understanding that that is essential doctrine, this is, this is foundational. We need to move on now to the doctrine of justification. Paul made it clear that sin came into the world through one man and so death, and Paul is making it, making it equally clear for the Christian. And you see that word receive there in verse 17. This is not for everybody. This is all who receive this grace. This grace is received. Jesus is one act of righteousness. Verse 18a, this gift of righteousness, justification, is granted to all who receive it. Right? Paul's counter then to original sin is the only logical thing. If Adam is fallen, if Adam can't fix it, it means I'm fallen and I can't fix it. Only God can. Adam's inability to fix the corruption he caused requires a rescuer, a savior. In other words, this is the biblical story. And men and women cannot fix the problem of sin and death. Our common nature means we, we need a common savior. And Paul says you have that savior only in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul makes us face reality. He's saying, open your eyes. Come on now. Be honest. Come on. Look at the world. Look, at, look in your mirror. 
look how long you've been trying to fix this problem. How can you clean your shirt with your own muddy hands? You can't. How then can fallen humanity fix its own fallen sinful spiritual state? We can't, only God can. And that's why Paul does what he does in the second half of almost every verse that we read. It's genius, isn't it? Verse 16, one man death. Okay, one man justification. Verse 18, one act of sin, condemnation. One act of righteousness, justification. God sent Jesus to fix this. And he sent Jesus to make things right. Listen carefully. If you do not understand this storyline, how Paul goes back to the beginning to show us ourselves, to show us our sin, and show us our Savior, you must know that our spiritual foes, they understand this. Get rid of Adam, get rid of Eve, and the fall, and, and the garden, and original sin, then you don't need a Savior, you don't need justification, and sometimes then you, in the, even in the life of the church, you ignore it, you reduce it in Christian instruction, and then all you're left with is you just got to try harder, you just got to be smarter, and you just got to do better. That is not the gospel. That is moralism. Understand that. So let's put it to a question form then. Why did, what, why did Jesus come as he did? Answer number one, verse 14. Adam was a pattern of the one to come. In other words, Jesus is the counter-reflection of what Adam was and did. Everything Adam did wrong... Jesus did right. He obeyed his father perfectly, outwardly, inwardly. He, I mean, can you imagine this? He never thought the wrong thing. He never did the wrong thing. Every impression that he gave off was right. I mean, that's beautiful. That's only Jesus. Why did Jesus come as he did? He, he, he is the counter-reflection of Adam. Number two answer. Why did Jesus come as he did? Verse 16, Jesus came for our justification. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. And you might have expected that many sins uh, to attract more punishment, right? The more sins, the more punishment, rather than just one sin. Because it says there, one sin brought condemnation. The punishment should fit the crime. So how horrible is Adam's sin? How horrible in the eyes of God is one sin? One sin brought judgment and condemnation to everyone. That's how bad sin is. You often hear, and it's a nice little phrase, if, if we were the only one who sinned, Christ would have died for us. And that is true. It's true because if we were the only one to sin, Christ would have had to die for us. And we need to keep those things in balance. So how wonderful is the free gift of God? The, the one act of disobedience, Adam, was followed by all these trespasses. You think billions and trillions probably of sins. And what do you know? Only one act of obedience. One act of obedience brought justification. Shut it all down, right? One act of obedience brought the righteousness of Jesus, credited to all who come by faith and repent and believe on him. Jesus' free gift of righteousness. Justification. I mean, don't you love that? Jesus' free gift of righteousness. Justification means we can right now, right now as a Christian, right now, face God with hope and with confidence. Right now. And right now, not based on our personal performance, as a Christian, we can face God with joy and an eager anticipation of a felt love and a felt assurance given by our God. Why is that true? Because I still sin. Well, because all of sins, including mine, all sins of time and space by the many is met by and trampled over the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's why. 
It is met by the obedience, verse 19b, of the one man. The one man's obedience makes me right. Period. The righteous live by what? Faith. Faith in the Son of God. Okay, so some implications. Death, though it remains, no longer reigns over the Christian. The sting has been removed. Sin, though it remains in our life, no longer reigns over the Christian. Condemnation from God is no longer our worry. It's no longer our worry. Why? Because, again, I still sin. Well, because, verse 17, those by faith, those who receive God's abundant provision of grace, do you see that there? And the gift of righteousness, in this free gift of righteousness, justification reigns in life through who? See, here it is. Reigns in life through who? Through the one man, Jesus Christ, and nothing more. Nothing more. In other words, this is the new realm. This is the new world order established by Jesus. Our righteousness was up to him, and he did it. And he did it. Righteousness and life now are the order of the day for those who have received the provision of Jesus Christ. Now, do we understand this? Because this is not religion, is it? It's not religion. This is Christianity. This means that justification, which the Christian is made righteous, given the very righteousness of Jesus, justification, which makes the Christian righteous before God, right now is the reigning approach, listen carefully, is the reigning approach in everything we do, in all the ways we think, every time we connect with God, every time we connect with each other, everything must begin here. Right? This is why I said, you get justification wrong and you'll get almost everything else wrong in Christian truth. Everything then must begin with the fact that genuine Christian knows we lead with justification in the totality of our relationship with everything. Now, now why do I say that? Why am I saying that this free gift of righteousness now holds sway over everything? Well, because Paul says it reigns. It reigns. It, it is superior. Okay, so let's work it out, right? Because to some of us, this might be old hat, but this is not old hat to our culture. It's not old hat for many Christians, and unfortunately, sometimes in the life of the church, it's not old hat. Before Christ, sin and death reigned over us. Now, only because of Christ and his free gift of righteousness, the tables have turned, right? The tables have turned. Now we are reigning over sin and death only because of Jesus, not because of your behavior. Now we reign in life only because of Jesus, not because of your behavior. Now we can sing the song in Christ alone. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Why is that true? This is the power of Christ in us. Loved ones, I need the gospel to be true. Justification needs to be true for me. Representative righteousness, it needs to be true for me. And it needed to be true for Paul too. Paul would say, 1 Timothy 1.15, that he was the worst of all sinners. Now, stay with me, the worst. Think about that for a moment, the worst of all sinners. In your mind, get that impression of what would the worst of all sinners do and what would he be like? And then ask yourself this question in relation to Paul. How could the worst of all sinners be so bold in his proclamation of the gospel? How could the worst of all sinners be so brave in the face of mass opposition because of the gospel? How could the worst of all sinners be so benign to his jailers and his enemies, be so benevolent in the giving of himself for the sake of the gospel, even though he was the worst of all sinners? Not just Christian sinners, but every sinner everywhere. Because if you think about it, that, that kind of guy, the, the sinner, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like 
A saint? That sounds like a sinner if he's the worst of all sinners. How, how in the world is he doing so much good? How? Answer. Because his boldness and his bravery and his benevolence was not, and it cannot be because he was the most righteous of all disciples or apostles. He already said he was the worst, so maybe he was lying, right? He just wanted us to think that he was super-duper humble, right? Uriah Heap, uh, David Copperfield, I'm the most humble man on the planet. So I'm going to paint this picture of me being really bad, even though I'm not really that bad, and I'll just kind of lie in the Bible. Why can this man who said he was the worst of all sinners, behave in the way that he did. So, so glorious of actions for Jesus Christ. Well, here it is. It was the reign of righteousness reigning in Paul, not because of Paul's righteousness, but because of the free gift of righteousness granted to him in Jesus. Because Paul was convinced that where sin increased, verse 20, you see it there, God's grace in Jesus much more incre- increased. For Paul, justification was the fuel for his, for his holy living. This, this is the abundance of grace. Now, now think with me. Sometimes in, in relation to ministers, they have this thing called uh, ministry, ministry burnout, right? And so we need to take care of things so we won't burn out for Jesus. And they give us a lot of lists, and they're good things. You know, get your rest, say your prayers, read your Bible, kiss your wife, hold your hand, and go eat dinner with her. Okay, we understand that. But none of that is locked on to justification like Paul is telling us here. You, you tell me which is better. Jeremiah 2.13. This is God to the people. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So, so what do you want for, for energy? You want a glass of water? That's human works. Or do you want a whole ocean? <laughs> That's justification. A long, long time ago, in seminary, one semester, about four or five great men just dropped out of the program. Good men, f- far better than me. And so I began to talk to each guy and to a T. Everybody basically said this thing. I said, what happened? What happened? And the basic line was this, how can I preach on a Sunday morning if I'm sinning on a Saturday night? And that was way back then, and I said in my head, holy cow. I sin on a Saturday night. What am I going to do? Because they're better than me. What am I going to do? So are you with me? Find a better way to have a continued zeal for the cause of Christ other than the doctrine of justification being the fuel for that zeal. Indeed, we'll say rocket fuel for that zeal. But if I'm going to let my obedience be my fuel then you know how it goes in the car thing. That's empty, right? Empty, full. This is me. And justification is just this. My standing before God is always on account of who Jesus is and not what I am. Paul needed justification. I need it. You need it. And the world needs to know about it. And the world must have it. So many in the wider church of Jesus Christ are wrestling now with the validity of the fall and and how science plays into this. But if you get rid of the fall and you get rid of Adam and original sin and its effects, then, then what has to follow? Ultimately, justification is at risk. Our standing with God is at risk. Jesus' entry into the world and his death on the cross was just a waste. It was just a waste. Or worse, it's just a mere example. 
But also, many in the wider church, when it comes to doctrine, it's like, come on, people are going to get so bored if you walk them through original sin and you walk them through justification. People, they're going to get bored. And by the way, that's not real life stuff. They need real life stuff. You tell them about sex, and you tell them about marriage, and you tell them about family, and you talk about finance, and they'll be a better them. However, in those things, they only offer us a pill. They only offer us a pill when Paul offers us a rebirth a new creation, a new reign in the one man, through the one man, Jesus Christ. Loved ones, can you or I have a better standing with God? Can there be a better you than the one that Paul is describing here? Verse 19, one act of righteousness resulted in justification in life for all people, all people justified in Christ. Verse 20, through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Does does Jesus do half? things? Does he half make us righteous? No. Verse 21, grace reigns. Grace reigns through righteousness. Whose righteousness? It better be Jesus. It is Jesus to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the big payoff, eternal life. Uh, John Piper, on one occasion, he says, if I can't see how horrible my sin is, I'll get justification wrong. I'll get almost everything else wrong. What happens at the cross wrong? Adoption, etc. I need to understand this. And then he says, sin is horrible at age 69 to, to, to be bent towards selfishness and pride and indolence and lust. It's awful. It's awful. And then he quotes from John's gospel and he says, it's not that we're victims of darkness. It's that we love darkness and we need someone to save us from it. Life here will be what it is. Sometimes good, sometimes bad sometimes really bad, just like us. But no matter, no matter. And I want you to understand this because what Paul is saying here is that he's implying that genuine spiritual maturity is not, is not obtained through, through self-exalting, furious religious activity or through pride-filled obedience, religious or otherwise. Spiritual maturity is cultivated through humbly understanding through faith in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of justification. Jesus Christ atoned for my sins. That's spiritual maturity. And to have a life growing to rely on that. Maturity is being humbled by God's grace in Jesus Christ. Our sinful human hearts have the stubborn tendency to make effort to secure God's favor by our own personal performance. I mean, I I know I can do that. One of the brightest theologians in the history of Christianity, John Owen, admitted in his middle years, he studied so hard, not always because he loved Jesus, but to secure status and indulge in pride-filled feelings over his contemporaries. You understand that? The guy would make himself sick studying. And part of the reason he would admit, because I just wanted the people to say, way to go, John. Way to go, Mr. Owen. You're the best. No one can do it like you. And oftentimes, we're so tempted, especially in our kind of uh, the age that we live in, we make heroes out of the very active Christians, and the rest of us are duds. And we just kind of have this imbalanced approach to these things. Wow, look at them go. And there they go again. And there they go again. When Jesus Christ is the only hero, the only hero. He's our righteousness. This is 1 Corinthians 1.30. He's our righteousness. He's our wisdom. He's our holiness. He is everything. He's everything. Listen to the words of Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 27. A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. So no boasting. 
So, loved ones, these truths then are reminders of all that Paul has been saying already. This, this work of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary work, propitiation, which Paul described beautifully in chapter 3 of Romans. That's necessary because we have to be certain that the sin of Adam was paid fully in some way. We have to be certain that our sins, past, present, future, has been paid fully in some way because God does not accept partial payment. He doesn't accept a good man doing the best that he can. No, God wants full payment. Adam's guilt, our sin, and only Jesus Christ is the one that can give that payment. Hold on to that, congregation. Don't lose sight of that. It is Jesus' free gift to us. This is the essence of the Christian message. God has to act to fix humanity's sin. He has to act to fix the fall. Again, we may be over-familiar with that here. That's fine, but the rest of the world doesn't believe this. And, and, and sometimes Christians have trouble with this. Just think about this statement. We need to get back to the days when. You typically hear that in political years. We need to get back to the days when. What days are they talking about? If you say we need to get back to the days before the fall, I'd understand that. I'd be like, yes. But if you're saying we need to get back to a day, some day after the fall, you're on your own. You're on your own because they're all the same. Every day was the same after the fall. Every day needed the saving work of Jesus Christ. There was no decade, no time when everything was so dandy that we didn't need Jesus. You see? But we fall prey to that so easily. Not only this, but the rest of the world. The rest of the world doesn't hold the justification. Stephen Prethrio, in his book, God is Not One, he, he kind of reviews eight religions in the world, and he says this, Sin is not the problem in Islam. Muslims do not believe in original sin. The need is not salvation, something God accomplishes, but submission to Allah, which is something humanity accomplishes, or rather tries to. So the reason why Paul has to break us and go beyond our individual transgressions and tie us to Adam is because he's saying you are a fallen creature. You cannot correct the problem. It's way too big for you. God has to do it. It is essential. This is basic Christianity. Pretho continues, In Buddhism, the need is not for God to counter the effects of sins, but for humans to compensate for the wrong that they have done when they are reincarnated in later life. Right? Uh, we make up for it. It's the human solution. I mean, sometimes this happens in Christianity. We do something really, really bad. So we say, you know what? To counter that, I'm going to do something really, really good. I feel better. Do you feel better? Yeah, I feel better. What is that? It's not grace. It's not the gospel. It's probably guilt. We make up for it. That's the human solution rather than a gracious God saying, I forgive you. Because of Jesus Christ, I can forgive you. Reporter Mary Murphy, who was covering the trial of Comrade Doik, he was the Fig Eat Newton fellow. She was reflecting this Buddhist mentality when she said, quote, Buddhist monks I interviewed at the trial of Comrade Doik said this, It's our belief that you take your sins with you to the next life. Doik will come back in a form befitting his crime. She asked, What sort of form of life will he come back in? The monk, she said, doesn't hesitate and answers. He'll come back a bug. He'll come back a bug. He'll make up for it. You guys, there's almost a billion people who believe that in our world right now. I'm going to compensate for it. The Christian message is God must make it right because we cannot. Paul does not teach Christians are justified by right human submission or human compensation. He does something scary. He says, you're so bad, but God's so good. 
And the only way that you're going to have a right relationship with, with God is through what Jesus has accomplished. God must make it right. Apart from his grace, you cannot, I cannot make it right. And loved ones, this Christ, this grace must be received by faith. Right? Received by faith. So, so receive him. Receive him. If you're here this morning and this is all brand new and you're like, I like this, then you receive him. Take this gift. And Christians, don't lose your sense of mission. Uh, don't forget to tell your friends and your families and your neighbors, receive him because apart from everything, you're lost. You're doomed. You are a child of Adam. You cannot rescue yourself. You need to face who you are. Receive the rescue. Believe it. Believe in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And this, look at history and show and look in the mirror and say why we all need this grace. One last thing, verse 20, even the law of God is evangelistic, isn't it? The law, verse 20, the law was added so that the trespasses might increase. The law multiplies the awareness of our need for our Savior. I thought the law was good. Well, sure, it's good. It shows us how to live. But the the law also shows us our sin. The law cries out to us, you are sinners. But then Paul says, verse 20 and 21, but where where sin increased grace, listen to this long Greek word, hooper permissio, grace increased, grace exceeds beyond what already exceeds. That's a literal reading of that word. Grace exceeds beyond what already exceeds. You have a low view of sin and you're like, no big deal to that verse. (laughs) You understand sin and you're like, are you kidding me, God? Are you kidding me? Is that true? I always think of my son when he was getting grace, 12, 13 years old. He said, are you sure, Dad? Are you sure that's true? The law shouts. Grace shouts louder. The law says, you sinner. Grace says, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. That is the great wonder of the grace of our Redeemer. So on night, Saturday night, I get on my knees and I say, my God, please forgive me. You're not shocked by my sin. I'm not shocked by my sin. Forgive me, God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace. That, that is my confidence. That's my only confidence. And this then is the freedom and the fuel for the Christian life. Now, say this and we're done. The power of sin is our love for sin. When we sin, we are loving sin more than God. So Paul takes us right to the pit and says, look how bad your condition is. Look at your own individual transgressions. Now, I want to show you the super abundant, abounding grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look how it's abounding over your sin. Paul knows once we realize how great is the love of God for us, that God is still forgiving after all these years, our response then will be love for him. That is zeal. Justification is the fuel for holy living. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, this love compels me. And when we understand this great rescue, what happens is a love for God displaces our love for sin. So again, we just don't have freedom. We have fuel now. The fuel of the surpassing love of Jesus Christ because he's rescued us from the worst we could be and the worst that we are. That's the gospel. It'll always be true. We'll never grow past that in sanctification, ever. When Dunlap found his murderer, Comrade Doik, he turned him in to the authorities. Comrade Doik, in the meantime, became a Christian. How can that be? Well, there's only one answer. (laughs) Where sin abounds, 
grace much more abounds. And in that courtroom, he was the only member of the Kamarouge government who confessed his guilt. He was the only one to make a public apology to the nation. Two million people died at the hands of the Kamarouge. Two million people. This guy wants to be a Christian? Yeah. Yeah, he wants to be a Christian. Well, how does that happen? Well, it begins with grace. And he knows now that he has a hope beyond this world, a hope not based on his merit, a hope that looks with unveiled face at his sinful nature and his trespasses and says, God's grace is greater than my sin. And it's given to me through God's grace in faith alone, in Christ alone, because that's my hope alone. It's all I have. We sing the song, don't we? All I have is Christ. By golly, we better believe that. We better believe that. All I have is Christ. Because Christ is all we need. Let's bow together. Thank you for your attention. Our God and Father, we thank you that it's always been true that our only hope in life and in death has been in our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ has fully paid for all our sins, past and present and future, when he shed his precious blood on the cross for them. And what happened at the cross is an undeserved moment for everyone who's received Jesus by faith. So we glory in the cross, Father. We'll go home by your grace thinking about the great wonder of justification that right now you see me as you would see your son, Jesus Christ. Perfect, spotless, without blemish. And in that sense, we are wonderful and we are a beautiful people. And God, help us to extend the doctrine of justification not only to ourselves, but to our fellow brothers and sisters. Help us to be reminded that when we look at them, we're seeing Jesus, because that's what you see, and you always get things right. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all those who belong to you, both now and forevermore. Amen.